um, that we're doing is called Advent in the Last Days. And so here's what we're thinking about is uh, I was discussing this with Joel of what should we do for Advent. And this was actually an idea I had kicked around before. And Joel said, well, what about our Advent, the coming of Christ? And I was like, no. Well, yeah, wait a minute. No, no, that won't work. Well, yes, it will. And so that's what I'm committed to. So I'm present tense me may be very mad at past me for doing this, but we're going to do it. And I actually, I think it's a really good idea. Advent is a tradition within the church, and it's about waiting for the coming of Christ. It's where the church rehearses that one more time. We go through it at this time of year to remember what it was like to wait for the coming of Christ, to build that anticipation in us. So the church before Christ was born was looking forward. They were waiting for this coming promised one. And the prophets and the people didn't always understand how this would work. Uh, They tended to think of Jesus' birth and his death and his resurrection and his coming in judgment and triumph over his enemies all happening at the same time. And what we've learned through history, what we see through the scriptures, is there's actually a big valley between those two mountain peaks. And that's the valley that we're in. So the Old Testament saints were waiting for the coming of Christ. They were waiting for for David's greater son, the one who would come and deliver us, the one who would triumph over his enemies. And and so for us, it's not that we're done. We're actually waiting for something else, not his first coming. We're waiting for his second coming. We're anticipating. We're looking forward to his return. And that's why um, Paul calls this our blessed hope. It is our hope. That's what we're doing is we're just like the saints in the Old Testament. We're waiting for this great event to come. And so this Advent, I thought it would be really helpful for us to take a look at how are things now and how will they be in the future? How will they be at at Christ's return? How will it be better when Jesus comes back? And so that's going to be our theme throughout uh, Advent. So today you can see on the slide, it's the future us. What will we be like? when Jesus returns. How are we now and what will it be like then? So when we when you think about how we are now and what we'll be like, the example that I think of is um, back when I was in school, when I was when I was driving to seminary, I'd get on the freeway, you know, pretty much the same time every day and drive home pretty much the same time every day. And every once in a while I would see this one car on the freeway and I just thought it was the best. I was like, that just looks great. And it turns out it was a 2002 DW Passat and the color was what they call fresco green. I, I didn't have any clue what the color was. And I can remember being in this old junker because when we first moved out there, our van broke down. And so I was given a car from somebody at church, and you know they're not giving you the best. And so I'd be in this old clunker car, and I'd see that, that VW, and I'd think, man, that is a nice-looking car. What would it be like if I was driving in that car? Wouldn't that be great? It would be so cool instead of this old clunker. Uh, it would just be wonderful. Well, I just thought, you know, there's no way in the universe I'm ever going to get one. I mean... How could I ever get, afford a car like that? Um, well, if you remember about four years ago, Lisa and I were driving to church for the third Friday prayer, and we got T-boned. And our, our, um, our uh, Camry was totaled. And so the, the insurance company gave us, I think, a fair amount of money. And then you folks, out of the generosity of your heart, gave me even more. And so Lisa and I went and looked for uh, replacement cars. Well, we went to this one used car dealership, and we drove uh, Lisa's car, and, and she liked it, and she bought it. And then we drove a 2002 VW Passat V6 GLX in fresco green. And the first time I took it out and drove it, I thought, oh, it's okay. 
And so we, we got Lisa's car and, and I said, let's try it again. Let me, let me take it out again. And I got out again and I got on some of those canyon roads and it just handled pretty tight. And that V6 has got a little bit of guts. And I went, oh, I have to have this. So was it everything I was hoping for? Well, when I was getting ready to buy it, the salesman said, look, it's an older German car. It's going to leak. You just have to know that it's coming. And so I was like, okay, I get it. And, and the leather seats, because it's a GLX, it's the maximum trim package. The, the leather seats were worn out and had big holes in them in a couple of places. I was like, okay, well, we can get that fixed. Well, we got the oil leak fixed twice because it kept leaking. Um, the front axle had to be replaced. Uh, the passenger window and the driver's side windows both eventually broke, and it's not like you can just fix that little thing to do it. There's this big metal panel. It was like 500 bucks just to make the window go up and down, and we had to do it for both sides. The heater doesn't work. I took it in, and, and it's clogged, and they said, well, we can replace the heater, but that's a big expense because we've got to take the whole dashboard out. And I thought, well, you know, if they're going to take the dashboard out, there's this little red display in the center of the console that uh, tells you, like, what alarms are going off, how many miles you've going, you know, you've got on your gas tank, what gear you're in, that kind of stuff. Maybe you should replace that, too. None of that's happened yet. Um, the visor, the driver's side visor went bad, and you would not believe what that car did. I turned it off, and everything's binging, and it wouldn't turn off, and things are going, and it's because of the visor, of all things. It took me forever to figure that out. It doesn't get great gas mileage, and it runs on premium, and that's really an issue right now. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed the gas prices. We were down in Orange for Thanksgiving, and we saw gas at like 525 or something like that. And, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is gonna be expensive. And now I just took it to get an oil change, and the coolant is disappearing, and it's not leaking out the bottom. I could fix all of this. I could go back and, and, and put a bunch of money and do all of this and fix all of these little things, all the little bits of trim that are broken, get the seats reupholstered and stuff. But would it be everything I was hoping it would be in 2002? I, I'm not sure it would. Uh, Fernando and I were talking about this a couple weeks ago. Is We both have these kind of dream cars we'd love to get in mint condition. He wanted, I think it was a 70 or 72 Camaro and I've always loved like a 68, 69 Challenger. I just thought those were really cool cars. But as we were talking about it, it was like, yeah, but you know what? It doesn't have all the, all the cool stuff that modern cars have. You know, it's got an AM, FM, an AM radio, and, and the seats are uncomfortable, and it runs on terrible gas, or it gets terrible gas mileage and stuff. So do you want to go back to this pristine, older version, or should I just shut up and get a new car? It's got cooler bells and whistles better gas mileage, you know, that kind of stuff. Well, what about us? What about us? Think about this for a second. Um, you know, when I was in high school, I had hair. I had nice hair. I had a girl one time write a letter to my mom and say, don't make Tim get his hair cut because it's nice. She didn't listen and I had to get my hair cut. But I mean, I, I had that. And now that I'm getting older, my knees are problematic. They, they have issues on occasion. My stomach is getting increasingly finicky. Um, I've, I, I was very uncomfortable Thanksgiving. I overate, ate the wrong stuff, ate too late, up all night. I'm getting more grumpy. I'm just going to have to admit it, you know. Lisa jokes about when I'm driving, I'm, I'm a different person. <laughs> the head spins around, you know, the flames come out of my eyes, I'm, you know, that kind of thing. Um, my sins are getting smaller, but the ones that linger trouble me more. 
it's just getting difficult. And I'm still, I've been doing this all my life, but I'm still making fairly stupid choices on occasion <laughs> that I have to repent from. So what would I like to be like? Do I want to go back to my 20s or to my 30s? You know, my body was in great shape. I could do anything back then. Um, when I was in basic training, we had to run a mile and a half, and we did it in formation, like marching, uh, but running. And there was an older gentleman. He was older. He was like 28. And he started out at the front of the flight, and by the time he fell back, he was back with us, two of us scooped him up and carried him the last two or three laps. I could do that as a 19-year-old because I was indestructible. Do I want to go back to that? Well, not really. I mean, do you want to go back to that older model pristine car? Wouldn't it be better if we could look forward and say, all of those weaknesses, all of those foibles, all of those difficulties that we have, they're not permanent. I, I could get a late model Tim, and it would be better than that early model Tim. Wouldn't that be great? Well, that's what we're looking forward to. That, that is what we're going to talk about today is our blessed hope. And so that's why I picked Titus, because I think it's a great introduction to the theme of looking forward to Christ's return. So let's take a look at this text and, and see what it has to say for us. So it begins with, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So the grace of God has appeared. Does that mean that before Jesus came, the grace of God didn't exist? Well, no, there was, there was grace before that. There was grace beforehand, but something significant has happened. There's something that's changed. So how were people in the Old Covenant saved? How were you saved in the Old Testament? By working real hard, by being really good? Well, the, the grace of God has appeared, so now that all changed, right? No, because consider Romans chapter 4. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham himself was justified by faith. That's how he became righteous, was by faith. And, and from Galatians 3, Paul tells us the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, us, like he did them, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in, your seed shall, or in you shall all the nations be blessed. So what does it mean, then, that the grace of God has appeared? It was there. People were saved in the Old Covenant the way we are. They were hoping for, but they were looking forward to Christmas. We're looking back on it. So here's an example of someone looking forward to and actually getting to see the arrival of God's grace. Simeon in Luke chapter 2. Jesus is born. Mary and Joseph take him to the temple to have him circumcised and, and to name him and those kind of things. And when they come in, they meet a man who's been hanging out in the temple, a prophet named Simeon. And listen to what he says. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon looks at the arrival of Jesus and says, here he is. Salvation has come. Here is the appearing of grace. It's not just grace. It's, it's grace incarnate. It's, it's grace in a person. And so Simeon now says, Lord, I can depart. I'm ready to go. I have seen your salvation coming to us. Jesus appeared, and not like poof magic, you know, transport him down. Jesus was born. He came. That's why we celebrate Christmas. And he brought salvation to all people. 
So sometimes I think we can think, how were you saved in the Old Covenant? Well, you were saved in the Old Covenant by coming to Israel and participating and becoming a Jew and, and going to the temple and that kind of stuff. Um, except, you know, not everybody did that. So you get people like Ruth. She became a Jew. She said, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. She married Boaz. She's, she's there. But then you get people like Naaman, the, the general from Damascus. He comes and he gets cleansed of his leprosy, and he goes to Elisha and says, your God's real, and, and just do me this one favor. Let me take a couple of mule loads of dirt from Israel so I can haul it with me, and I got to work for the king. And so when the king goes into his God, Mishrach, I, he wants to lean on my arm, and so is this okay? And Elisha says, go in peace. He'd been saved. He'd seen that the God of Israel was real. So that's not always a thing, but God was doing something in Israel. He was preparing something. And what was that something? A baby born in a manger who is the appearing of God's grace. So that's what salvation looked like for them, was, was anticipating, looking forward to that. And, and God protected and, and held up Israel because that was their destiny, was to bring forth this Messiah, this promise made to Eve that her seed would crush the head of the serpent. This promise made to, to Abraham that his offspring would be a blessing to the nations. This promise made to David that his son would sit on his throne forever. These promises were brought forward and they, they come to, to fullness in Christ. That's what they were hoping for. That's what they were looking for. What about us? What does it look like for us to wait, to look forward to, to anticipate our, our blessed hope coming? Well, what Paul says next is after he says that salvation has appeared or grace has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, he says, this is what it does. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It trains us. It educates us. This salvation comes and it tells us this is what you should look like. It doesn't immediately, poof, make us into our final state. It trains us to renounce ungodliness. It trains us. It leads us away from those ungodly things that keep hanging on to us. It, it, it trains us to denounce, to turn away from worldly passions. But the reality is, between now and Christ's coming, they're still there. And they still need to be renounced. It doesn't eradicate. The salvation doesn't eradicate it from us. But it does train us to live self-controlled and to live upright, and to try and struggle and be godly in this present age. That's what salvation brings to us. And notice the, the way that Paul words it is it's a struggle. It's not, I remember uh, one of my professors in seminary, D.A. Carson, said, no one slouches into holiness. You don't just slide into it. The, the salvation that we have brings us, it trains us, it leads us in that direction. Why? How, how does it do that? How does it lead us to, to, these, to renounce these things? Well, verse 13, it does that waiting for us, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, right there in the middle. It does it because it gives us hope. It instills in us this hope. Tim Keller wrote, humans are hope-shaped creatures. The way we live now is completely controlled by what you believe about your future. 
So how do we renounce godliness, ungodliness? How do we uh, renounce worldly passions? How do we do that? Because we hang on to this hope that he's given us. So our hope is rooted in the reality that God has saved us, that he's come to us, that he's redeemed us, not that we've been made perfect, not that we've arrived, not that we've got it now. So we look forward to those things. We struggle through those things. We work on those things. And, and here's what John tells us. In 1 John chapter 3, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. You are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Do you get the, the tension there? You are God's children now. And what you will be, what that will mean, has not been revealed yet. But we know that he, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. When Jesus appears, when he comes again, his second arrival, we'll see him. And what we will be is then. That's when it arrives. And then, then here's, here's the linchpin that says, how do you live now? John goes on, and anyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So that, that's the, the, the key there is we have this hope. We have this, this sure thing that's in the future that we've got a taste of now. And it leads us to renounce those things, to fight those things. So how, how does the hope help us? Well, let's say that you were chosen. I've never experienced this. You were chosen for a varsity sports team. Never had a chance in the world of being chosen for a varsity sports team. And you know practice doesn't start for four months. What do you do between the time that you get told, hey, you have been chosen for the varsity team and the first practice? You sit on the couch and eat Doritos? Maybe that's why I never got chosen for varsity teams. Maybe, maybe that was my problem. No, what you do is you begin to work out. You, you start monitoring, how am I eating? How much water am I getting? Uh, I'm going to go out and start running. I'm going to start practicing whatever this sport is. Now, does that mean that at that point you are now perfectly and totally able to do that varsity sport? No, you're preparing for it. You're working for it on that first day when the coach appears and he says, okay, now do this. Now we're going to run this lap. Now you need to do these exercises. You go home sore, even though you've been working out. Because you're not there yet, but now you are. You couldn't do your sport until you were part of a team to do it. So this is the hope that we have, is, is once I've been told I'm on varsity, I have this hope of making the team, of being a starter on the varsity team. And so I'm going to work towards that, even though I won't be there until the, the practice starts. That's what it's like for us, is you are children of God now. Now. You are children of God. And what you are going to be, what that will look like hasn't appeared yet. You don't know what it's going to be yet. But if you put your hope in that, then you can't do all of those things that Paul has been telling us. Fight that ungodliness. War against those worldly passions. You can struggle through all of that. So that's, that's what we're waiting for. And, and the reason we can do that now, the reason that you are a child of God now, is what Paul tells us next. It's because we have a Savior, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawliness, un unlawless, or I'm sorry, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We have this hope of actually attaining that goal because we have been redeemed, a Savior who has redeemed us. To, to be redeemed is to be bought back, to, to be cashed in, to have someone pay for you. 
redeemed from how much lawlessness? Only the lawlessness that you did before you became a believer? Only the lawlessness that you feel really bad about now? No, you have been redeemed from all lawlessness. And, and will we purify ourselves? Has he made it possible for us now to purify ourselves? No, it says we have been redeemed from all lawliness, lawless, law. English is so hard sometimes. <laughs> He's redeemed us from all lawlessness and purify himself for himself. He, he's the one who's working to purify himself. So here's the good news, believer. God knows you. Now we can smile and we can nod and think that's really nice. It gets scary because God knows you. He knows all of your triumphs and he knows all your failures. He knows all of the righteous deeds you've ever done and every single one of your sins. He is aware of every pure and beautiful thought you've ever had and some of those twisted, dark, nasty ones that you would never admit. He knows things that you've confessed only to your closest friends and allies and things that you're terrified to confess to anybody, even to yourself. He knows the things that are so bad about you that you have tried to forget them and put them away. He knows all of this. We lay naked before him, exposed in every way possible. And that can be terrifying. There are things I don't want people to know about me. And God knows them, probably knows them better than I do. And yet, he loves you. You are so fully and completely and totally known and absolutely loved. He has redeemed for himself. He is purifying for himself. He knows you. You have been redeemed. And so this is how you can march forward in this time between the two peaks, waiting for Jesus' return, stumbling, tripping, and falling, and still pressing on because God knows you. And he's purifying you. You have been redeemed. Also, we have this great promise, right? Go back to that verse. We have our blessed hope. We have this tremendous promise that God has given us. How do we know? How can we be sure of this hope? How, how can we be positive that we've got that? Well, God has given us a guarantee. So he doesn't just say, you're saved. He said, you're saved, and let me, let me seal that. Let me put a guarantee, a stamp on that that says, it is a done deal. It's going to happen. We have the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity indwells us. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning of verse 21, Paul says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. How do you know that you will attain to that blessed hope? You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You have the guarantee of this future promise. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 in him also, you, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit resides in you. Why is it you are now uncomfortable with those sins that you had before? Why am I still upset about the sins that won't quite go away, whereas before they never bothered me? Because I've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. He's inclining my heart away from those things. He wants me to not be that way. And so that's why in Ephesians 4.30, Paul says, 
Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. If God just eradicated all of your evil desires, all your wickedness, all that bentness of you, you wouldn't be in danger of grieving the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is leading you to that promise. He is conducting you to that promise. And so at times we can grieve him. We can wind up doing what he doesn't want us to do. But the good news is he's there and reminding you this is grievous. This is not something that's going to satisfy. And so he's training us. He's, he's teaching us. He's leading us to that final state. You have a guarantee that even though you blow it, you're still going to get there. There, there are boxes. I'm a tinkerer, right? I like opening stuff up. There are boxes that says if you open this, it voids the warranty. And I open it anyway because I don't really care. We can't void this warranty. This guarantee cannot be destroyed. It is the Holy Spirit has sealed us for that day. You are heading towards this resurrection. And so as difficult as things are, I want you to know it gets better. It gets better. We have a taste of it now. We have a sample of it now. We, we kind of begin to get the idea. We wrestle with the results of the fall right now. But we have a promise that it gets better. And, and this promise is not that one day it just all zaps and it's gone. It's a process. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transferred and transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So the Spirit is working in us. He is transforming us from one degree to another. There are parts of your life where you'll see just amazing progress, and there's other parts of your life where you go, man, I'm struggling here. But he's, he's working in you. He's transforming you one degree to another. And then, beloved, when Jesus comes, what happens at the return? When Jesus stands on the earth, Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's what it will mean when Jesus appears, we will appear with him in glory. 1 Corinthians 15, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. What are you hoping for now? What are the struggles that you're facing now within this body? Is, your attention span is, is woefully short. Your, your digestion is shot. Your knees are acting up. Your hip is achy. Your hair's falling out. You're grumpy. Whatever it is, you will be changed in an instant in the resurrection. So listen to what Paul says it's going to be like. He, he tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 what the difference will be. Listen to the contrast. So it is with the resurrection from the dead. What is sown perishable, what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. What is sown in natural body is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. What he's saying here is we are currently in the state of being perishable. I think most of us know that especially post, anybody past about 19, you know you're perishable. Things have been kind of heading down. We're perishable. We're dishonorable. Sin stains us. Even if you stop sinning immediately, you have things in the past you know you've done. We're dishonorable. We're weak. 
We don't have the power that we need. That's all summed up in that statement, a natural body. This is what the body is like in nature. But we will be raised immortal, glorious, and in power. And that's what he means by a spiritual body, is a, spir- a body dictated by the principles of the spirit, not by the, the principles of weakness and brokenness. So how can we continue to wrestle with impure motives and desires? How can we be sure of what is coming? What is it going to be like? I don't know if in the resurrection we'll all be able to fly like Superman or instantly appear anywhere in the universe. I don't know. I don't know if we'll be able to walk on the moon or on the surface of the sun or at the bottom of the ocean. I I don't know about those things. The scripture doesn't tell us. But what he does tell us is in that resurrected moment, we will be what God intended humanity to be. That's why Jesus is the forerunner. He is the first fruits. He is the example. He's the one we will be conformed to. It's because he is the perfect human. He is what God intends humanity to be like. But the scripture tells us that between then and now, we're wrestling, we're struggling, we're stumbling. We're frustrated with the increased limitations physically or mentally. We want to go back to that 20-year-old model, but you know what? That wasn't that great either. What awaits us in the resurrection, this blessed hope, this promise in the future, what we will be like at that point, you can't imagine. You can't imagine it. In 1 Corinthians 2.9, Paul says, what is written, uh, as it is written, rather, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor heart of man imagined, what is God has prepared for those who love him. We cannot conceive of what it will be like in, in that promised state. We know one thing, we'll be like Jesus. We were predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, and in his resurrection, we'll get there. So in between the two, as we're struggling, as we're, as we're weak, as we're, we're stumbling and, and, and falling and failing and succeeding and, and messing it all up and getting it all right, keep your hope focused in the future. The blessed hope is the return of Jesus Christ, and that's when we'll be made right. Everything that you've ever thought was frustrating about yourself will be set right. And things that you thought were great about yourself will be set right. And things you never knew you had about yourself will be set right because we will be finally conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. It gets better, I promise. And it gets better, not because I promise, but because God promised. That's why it gets better. Our blessed hope, the return of our God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, as we wait in this second advent, this this time between your first coming and your return, Lord, we recognize that our limitations and our brokenness are not just in our body, but also in our mind and our spirit. And Lord, because your Holy Spirit has sealed us, because he has given us this promise, because he's given us a foretaste, we can be frustrated at times. We can be sad at times because of our failures and our weakness. We can lament our bad decisions, our stupid master plans. And we can rejoice, Lord, when we see you working in our lives in a way. We can delight in the fact that even in our brokenness, even in our frailness, you're present, you're working, and you're leading. And so, Lord, would you help us in this Advent season fix our hope on the blessed coming, on the blessed promise, the, the, the hope of the return of Jesus Christ that is our future. And Lord, would you rekindle in us a desire for that perfect, 
final state, that place where we are known deeply, loved fully, and conformed to the image of your Son. Lord, give us grace, we pray. Amen.